Welcome to the Conservation Queens podcast. We are five girls who love the earth and have a passion for living a more eco-friendly life. We are real-life zoo employees, and as always, nothing that we say reflects our organizations, and all thoughts and opinions are our own. Please keep in mind that we try to keep our podcast about PG-13, so if you have younger listeners, you may want to review the content beforehand. But with that, I'm Emily B. I'm Kenzie. And with that, let's talk about some stuff. All right, so to kick off the episode, let's start with fan shout-outs. Uh, all the Conservation Queen's pets, it was National Pet Day. So hello to Magnolia, my baby, Ellie, Arthur, and Brizo, and Izumi. Happy National Pet Day, everybody. Ellie says thank you. She's very pleased. <laughs> As she should be. <laughs> all right, and then, of course, next we have some conservation updates. Emily, have you ever heard of the Iberian lynx before? I'm going to assume based on the name that it is a type of cat. It is a type of cat. Excellent use of context clues. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the Iberian lynx uh, is a type of cat that you can find in, surprise, surprise, the peninsula of Iberia. That is Portugal and Spain. Uh, 2002, the Iberian lynx was extinct in Portugal and down to fewer than about 100 animals in Spain. Uh, But it is well on track to becoming the first cat species to go extinct since the saber-toothed tiger about 12,000 years ago. Yeah, so not the best. Not good. But, of course, some conservationists stepped in to try and help. Uh, Let's see here. I think they were doing, um, like, basically species survival plan, right? Yeah, pretty Um, much. Uh, They were taking wild populations, captive-bred lynx, and then rewilding them back into the historical ranges to kind of help boost up their numbers while also introducing prey species. Okay, so here you go. Here's your land. Here's your food. Mm-hmm. Uh, they luck. also created wildlife corridors and highway tunnels uh, to reduce deaths from road collisions, which I think, That's have we exciting. talked about, blah, 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 blah. have we talked <laughs> about wildlife corridors before? I feel like we've um, I think we've mentioned them a few times, but I don't think we've done an episode on them. But it's basically, it's just like a, a wildlife bridge, basically. Mm-hmm. A bridge of life. Yes, exactly. Not a highway, but just a nice stroll. A nice stroll for like a duck or a bear or a lynx, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a couple of video cameras that you can actually go up on that shows uh, wildlife corridors and kind of... Uh, the species is one of a handful that's been highlighted in a study showing how targeted conservation solutions can actually save species from going extinct. Uh, that being said, there are still threats that remain, including climate change. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? The climate is changing. Mm-hmm. Now, this next one, though, I feel like you would be familiar with. This is the sawfish, uh, yeah. Florida Wildlife, right? F- Florida Wildlife. Yeah, Florida Wildlife Conservation Commission. It's a mouthful. All right. Just making sure. FWC. <laughs> you think after growing up in the Army, I would know about acronyms, but no. <laughs> They're very difficult. They it's are. Nice. So uh, FWC sawfish biologists responded to hotline reports of two large small-toothed sawfish that died in the Florida Keys this week. Uh, one was a 16-foot female and weighed between 800 and 1,000 pounds. 
That's giant. Yeah. And then there was a younger female who was about 12 feet, four inches long. and Still giant. Yeah, still, <laughs> and weighed between 400 and 500. Uh, so basically me after Christmas dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so the 16-foot sawfish was actually said to be the longest measured by scientists since research began on this species, which is pretty That's impressive. wild to me. Yeah. Uh, they couldn't really determine a cause of death. Uh, however valuable life history information was and will continue to be collected from the carcasses. Uh, the sawfish biologists are also trying to learn as much as they can from the samples they're collecting. Uh, one example is that the vertebra will be used to determine the ages of both sawfish. The DNA is actually going to be sequenced and then compared to other sawfish data uh, that have been studied, and the length at maturity for females will be fine-tuned based on the data. And they're going to say, wow, this is the longest sawfish we ever found. It must be the oldest sawfish we ever found. Mm -hmm. Either that or it had excellent access to food. <laughs> yes, she found the buffet. So listeners, how can you help endangered small tooth sawfish? Well, if you see or catch a sawfish, let us know, not us specifically. Uh, you're going to call the sawfish hotline, which is 844-4-SAWFISH, all capital, you can also email sawfish at myfwc.com and then submit a report through the FWC reporter app, which is pretty handy to have on hand, especially yeah, if you live in Florida. Yeah, or if you go down to visit. But yeah, please do not call Emily or I if you find a sawfish. <laughs> There's nothing we can do. <laughs> I studied sure, sure. bats in college. All right, so that leads us into zoo news. Um, so I've got some fun ones this week. Sorry, Abby, I've taken over for you. This is what happens when you leave us alone. Um, the first one that I found was that apparently last week, two dozen apes, uh, Barbary macaques, Barbary apes, escaped from a southwestern German zoo. Very fun times. Um, literally, the article just said that they were like having a grand old time, just rolling in the sunshine and chilling in the trees. I was like, wow, if I were going to escape from a zoo, this is the way to do it. Um, but they were found right away. They were recaptured. Um, totally fine. They're good. But I just thought that was hilarious. The article was very much like, the monkeys just had a great time. And I was like, wow. <laughs> they they were just monkeying around. I would say that is 100% accurate. <laughs> Um, some other things, we've got lots of babies as always. Um, some baby Humboldt penguins at the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago. Humboldt penguins are one of the warm weather species of penguins, so that's pretty neat. Um, there are some baby lemurs at the Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle. Um, and then uh, probably the cutest zoo news of the week goes to the three-month-old tiger cub um, at Zoo Miami that just passed their very first swim Aww. test. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, listeners. The videos have been all over Facebook, but this tiny tiger cub was just like, yes, I would like to swim. I am a swimmer. And after the swim test, the tiger literally turned around and was like, back to the pool I go. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I thought that was very Aren't cute. tigers actually pretty good swimmers? Yes, they are. They are fabulous swimmers. Oh. Um, all right. And then time for everybody's favorite news, the best news, beluga news. Um, I found a cool um, article this week. There's a study by... Aurora College, which is a small college in Canada, um, very near the Arctic. It's actually, um, there are a couple campuses, but they're all like right in the Arctic Circle. So, you know, really, truly where I should have gone to college, apparently. <laughs> um, but they do a lot of um, long-term studies about belugas because they live near them and they have very close relationships with the native people of that area. So they actually talk to these native people, um, like people who traditionally would hunt these whales, and they use them to monitor the whales and keep um, close tabs on them. 
They also have talked to these native people who used to whale, like kill these whales for food. And they have improved their tagging technique based on how these people used to catch the whales. That's pretty cool. Wow. Um, some of the data that was coming out in the study had to do with basically what the whales were eating based on what's available to them and comparing that to what fishers in the area have been catching. And it was really neat to see like if the fishers were having trouble catching cod, the belugas weren't catching any cod and their stomachs would be full of different animals. Um, so they could really see like, if the fishermen aren't catching this fish, well, neither are the belugas. And that's, you know, maybe that's a bigger problem here. Um, now, they did say that there's more data needed to tie the conditions of the whales to climate change and bigger things like that. But I just thought that was really cool. I had not heard of this group before. Um, so I would love to hear more about all the things they've learned from belugas. I am definitely um, going to check it out. And wow, what do you know? It's amazing when you actually work with the native peoples and local community who know what they're doing. Okay. All right, uh, so with that, Beluga News is now done, and we are going to head to the main part of this episode, which is Purple Martins, a bird that we see here in Florida quite a bit. And with that, I'll just let future Emily, future Abby, and future Michelle take it away. All right, it's time for the most important reason of this episode, the reason we're all here today, and it's because we have our very first interview. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I know, very exciting. Um, so today on our episode, we are going to be interviewing my close personal friend, Michelle. Hi, everyone. Uh, there she be. Um, we are going to be talking about her work. All right, so yes, so this whole episode is going to be about Michelle and her work with Purple Martins. Um, so Michelle, why don't you go ahead and just give us kind of your background. Uh, Michelle works at the same um, zoological facility that Abby and the rest of the conservation queens and I do, um, but she just works in the conservation team. So Michelle, just tell us kind of how did you get to the conservation team? Were you always interested? Like what's your background? Like give us your... Uh, your magical journey. Your life story. Sure. Well, thank you both for, or all of you for having me. Uh, you know, longtime listener, first time caller. Um, <laughs> Impressive. So um, myself, I, I grew up outside of Philadelphia and the, our family vacations are always to national parks. Um, so I was very fortunate to be able to do that kind of vacationing as a kid and became really interested in wildlife that way. Um, I actually decided to just to go to the University of Wyoming for school. It's a fantastic school. I went there and uh, got a bachelor's degree in wildlife and fisheries biology and management. Fisheries? Michelle, you never told me this. Yeah, <laughs> technically I have taken an ichthyology course. So Ooh, you'd never know. <laughs> I mean, I could have taken ichthyology and then I thought parasites were more interesting. There you so. go. Yeah. Okay. So you went to Wyoming. Then what? Went to Wyoming. Uh, while I was out there, I got, uh, you know, a few opportunities uh, through the Student Conservation Association, did a couple internships, one in Glacier National Park, which I know you're planning to visit, Emily. So I'm very, very excited, excited for you. Can I come in your suitcase? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> cool. Um, as a as an interpretive ranger, it was the the best summer I had. I think if anyone gets a chance to be a park ranger, definitely take it. Um, I also worked down in Arkansas at a wildlife refuge there, Cache River. Um, and then my last year in school, I realized you know I didn't have any experience in the lab, and uh, started working in a lab for a grad student there who did polar bear research. Actually, oh, oh cool. 
So after I graduated from Wyoming, I, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, had no job offers. Um, so I ended up staying on as a lab tech uh, for my um, for my advisor. Um, and that's when the opportunity came around. And I actually uh, was able to get a uh, professional internship at uh, Walt Disney World doing uh, their uh, reproductive endocrinology internship, which was awesome. That's um, so much science. <laughs> it was, it, you know, it was a good thing I ended up going into the lab work because it kind of like set me on like this five year trajectory out of the field and into the laboratory. <laughs> um, so I did that. And then I, I made a, a decision to go back to school. I went to Southern Illinois University, got my master's degree in zoology. And uh, my thesis there was all about heat stress physiology, um, just trying to understand if animals within a single generation had the ability to uh, acclimate to heat stressors associated with climate change. Give us the like one minute version. So, do they or do or do they not? So I, I looked at wild caught mice um, and there is some, we call it a phenotypic plasticity. Uh, and mice, uh, some of their systems are able to adjust um, and others aren't. And just so kind of. Yeah. <laughs> just some interesting things happen. You know, it seems like they move from dealing with stressors with their endocrine system to dealing it with it using proteins and other uh, resources. So they can do some acclimation, but, you know, they're they're dealing with it in, in kind of different novel ways than we expect it. You almost Fancy. wonder if the change would be greater with like longer generations with like animals that don't breed every year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's definitely one study um, and kind of a uh, uh, very broad arching thing. And that's one of the things I learned in grad school actually was that while that type of research is interesting, I uh, really wanted to get back into doing some more hands-on management stuff. So after that, I was actually able to pick up uh, where we all work now, and I got a, an endocrinology technician position um, and worked there for two years um, on our science team. Uh, a lot of, are they pregnant? Are they not pregnant? Do we want them to get pregnant? Do we want them to not be pregnant? Was there poop if, involved? If the question is believable, there, yeah. the answer is yes. <laughs> we want them to be pregnant. There was a lot of poop involved. Uh, I always called it the number two job at the zoo. Um, <laughs> so we did a lot of non-invasive hormone research, a lot of feces, uh, urine, uh, every now and then blood, but really just mostly poop. You can learn a lot about an animal from their poop. So you're like an actual poop scientist. Yeah, a poopologist. Absolutely. Um, and then, <laughs> I found my new dream job, poopologist. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Good job. And then uh, after that, I, um, oh no, I guess I get antsy, it seems, every two years. Because about two years in, I decided that I wanted to branch out and do something a little different. An opportunity came up on the same team to start studying um the sensory environment of our animals under our care associated with uh, animal welfare. So what we were doing was mostly looking at light and sound levels throughout the zoo and um, aquarium settings to see what what's it like for an animal under our care within a 24 hour period. What do they see? What do they hear? Are we providing them um, with the best proximates for their their natural environments? 
Um, so there, the thing I really got into was looking into UV light um, for indoor house herpetofauna. Um, it's interesting, you know, AZA has is coming out with more and more booklets about how to best care for animals um, under human care. And the couple of manuals that they have out for herptofauna, they say, make sure you're providing adequate lighting. But what that is, is yeah, what that is, is still pretty ill-defined. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, I will say that, so those two roles that I had, uh, they were contracted positions. So I was constantly looking for an opportunity to go ahead and hop over into a, a full-time staff position. Um, and that opportunity came about two years into me doing the <laughs> sensory environment. Um, a position opened up on our conservation team um, as an avian, uh, a avian conservation biology technician. Um, that and might that's... be my dream job. <laughs> So um, well, now, you know, Abby, you just got to go hang out with some mice for two years yeah. and then go look at poop for two years. I mean, I, I hang out with kids and look at poop at the same time now. So does that mean I have to do it for four years instead? Yeah. You're yes. almost oh, there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it's definitely one of those things, you know, everybody finds kind of their own breakthrough into the job that they want. And it happened to be at the time that uh, this team was really looking for someone with more of a research background, um, you know, because certainly there were candidates who probably had a stronger field biology background than I did, um, but happened to be the right place, right time. Um, so yeah, I've been uh, with that team for about a, a year and a half now. Ooh, okay, so now that we know how you got there, Let's learn about the purple martins themselves. So for our listeners who have no idea what a purple martin is, um, Michelle, give us like a two, like a two sentence, like what is a purple martin? Sure. I mean, as you have all discussed before, birds aren't real. They are government drones. They are. They work for the bourgeoisie. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's, it's been scientifically proven. These are very needy drones. <laughs> <laughs> now, purple martins are a member of the swallow family. Um, they are a migratory songbird, um, and they're part of the group known as aerial insectivores, which means that they um, eat and, well, they f eat while flying. Or as someone described it, it was like, a, it's like doing fast food drive-through, which I liked. <laughs> okay. So, um, so we've learned that they are drive-through uh <laughs> insectivores. Yes. So what kind of bugs do they eat? So purple martins will eat a lot of bugs. Um, kind of a common misconception is that they are excellent mosquito controls. Mosquitoes don't provide a whole lot of food for purple martins, but they are songbirds. They're the largest member of the swallow family, so they're a bigger songbird. Um, so a lot of times you'll see them eating things like um, we get a lot of, at least here in Florida, we see them eat a lot of butterflies and dragonflies. So they eat the mosquito control. They do a little bit, but they also eat a lot of pest plants. Uh, or I'm sorry, not pest plants. <laughs> they eat a lot of pest to plants. Um, so that's actually one of the things that has really driven the relationship between purple martins and humans is that they are really good for keeping pests under control in a crop situation. Can you um, kind of explain the background of like 
purple martins with humans? Because it's kind of interesting. It's different than other birds. Absolutely. So um, the history, as far as we know, starting with Native Americans, um, they would take gourds and dry them out and hang them. Purple martins are cavity nesters, so they like to nest somewhere that they can go into, and that's nice and dark. Um, so these gourds being hung up was a really big attractant to the birds as a, as a safe place to nest. And then they would hang these gourds around the crop fields and the purple martins would come and eat all of their, all of their, uh, crop pests. So it was a great way to ensure a really healthy crop. And the purple martins got a nesting place out of it. And when Europeans came over, they saw this practice and adopted it. And I mean, it's continued, uh, for centuries now. And on top of the strong relationship that purple martins have with humans, um, we are also seeing a reduction in their natural habitat. So cavity nesters uh, like purple martins are often gonna look for something in kind of like an old growth forest stand, old woodpecker holes, things like that to make their, uh, to nest in. Um, there's not a whole lot of that habitat left, especially up and down the East Coast. Um, and they already have a strong relationship with humans. So actually the only place purple martins will nest up and down the east coast of the United States is in houses that humans provide. Wow, so that's why we have lots of purple martin houses at our facility, right? Like exactly. 50 or something like that, right? I mean, yeah. 50 like stands. Yeah, we have, so um, when I, I guess I should clarify, whenever I refer to a purple martin house, um, it's actually a whole stand of houses. Um, that will have anywhere between 14 and 26 nesting cavities on it. It's an apartment building. Yes, it is. Yeah. Purple Martins are, are colony nesters. Um, they, there's kind of like a safety and numbers thing there. Um, when they, they don't, the adults don't have a whole lot of predators, but their babies will get predated on by hawks and crows and things of that nature. Um, so it's a good thing for them to nest in colonies because when a predator comes around, the adults will actually mob that predator to chase it away. Okay, so I have a question. Mm -hmm. um, so we mentioned that they nest all up and down the East Coast of the United States, but like, where do they live the rest of the year or do they live in the East Coast or yeah. where are they from? So purple martins um, spend most of their year actually down in Brazil in the Amazon basin. Uh, so they're making this huge migration every year. Um, I like to say that we get the lazy ones here in Florida. Um, <laughs> it's a much shorter trip than the ones who go all the way up to Canada. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so they, they nest down in the Amazon basin um, and then they'll go ahead. I'm sorry. They nest in the, <laughs> they nest in the, in the U S um, but the rest of their time is down in the Amazon basin. And actually besides just the East coast nesting population, we do have a few other smaller populations. Uh, there's one in the Northwest and they actually um, nest in much more, I guess, kind of naturalized conditions because they still have those old growth forests that they can nest in. Um, and then there's also a small population that we don't know a whole lot about in the Southwest. And the reason we don't know a lot about them is because they live in cactuses. And Whoa. that's much harder to study. So. That's so cute. <laughs> yeah. It's them and the elf owls. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to ask the question that I'm sure Abby is just chomping at the bit to know. Um, if I wanted to go out and see a purple martin, what am I looking for? Like, what do they look like? How big are they? Sure. So purple martins um, are going to have that classic kind of swallow shape. So the V-shaped wings and they have a fork-shaped tail. 
um, the they kind their body shape is almost kind of like a cigar shape, kind of like a chimney swift kind of shape itself. Um, the boys are a purple color, although we did have a guest argue that last week. <laughs> um, we did. He was like, no, they're, he's like, I don't see it. They're not purple. I don't see it. Well, are you sure? You're one? standing seven, like 17 <laughs> feet away from them. So maybe you just can't see it that well. So they, the purple. It was cloudy. Yeah. The pur- <laughs> and that's the thing is the purple on their, on the boys feathers is an iridescent purple. So it really shines when they get hit by the light. But if Let's it's a cloud, Google it. <laughs> yeah. So if you uh, see them on a cloudy day, they might look look more of like a black to a dark blue. And then the girls um, are brown on the top and white on the bottom. Gotcha. Classic countershading. Classic countershading. One it. of my favorite topics. <laughs> um, then, so I guess the real question here is: so why are we studying them? Is there a reason we're studying them, or just to learn more about them, or it's a purple bird, danger? Emily? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Birds. Yeah. Whatever. That's a great question. And actually I was, you know, when I first became aware of this project, I, you know, was, had been working for this facility and was kind of involved in the periphery when I was on the science team, helping out doing some nest checks and things like that. Um, and I just kind of assumed they were endangered because, you know, why else would we be spending all this time and effort into studying them? Um, and the truth is we don't, we don't know enough about them. It was just, such the truth for so many animals to really call whether or not they're endangered um, or even threatened. There's just a lack of data. We do know that aerial insectivores, the larger, broader group of birds that they belong to, have declined by one third over the past 50 years. So chances are they're probably not doing great. But to prove that, we need to study them. Are they involved kind of in the North American songbird crisis that's happening? You know, I'm, it's, I'm sure it's all tied in. I'm not exactly sure how, again, we, we just, there's kind of a lack of data to exactly know how bad the situation is when it comes to Purple Martins. But um, that's why we do this type of research. We want to know, um, of course, we're doing basic research. How many Purple Martins are showing up at our site? Um how many eggs are they having? How many of those eggs are hatching? How many of those hatchlings make it to fledglings? And how many of those fledglings make it back the next year? Um, and we're combining our data with data um, throughout the United States. We work with this great group called the Purple Martin Conservation Association, and they're based out of Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, and we're also working with researchers down in Brazil uh, to really get a full picture of what it's like to be a purple martin and really try to understand the numbers on these populations and, and what these animals need to survive. You know, what, what can we be doing to boost their sustainability? So do you guys tag them or how do we know? We do. So um, a lot of bird researchers use what are called bird bands. And these are typically metal bands that go around their legs. Um, it's a loose fit um, so they can grow into them. Our birds, um, we will, every chick that's uh, born at our zoo, we go ahead and they get a, um, a band it's very easy to ban chicks because they can't fly. Uh, that's the <laughs> best time to do it. It's like, so <laughs> much, it's so I, much easier. I, say, I worked um, in a lab at when I was in college, and we banded chickadees. 
Mm-hmm. And they're so mean. <laughs> I, we had so many bites all the time because when they can fly and bite you, it hurts so bad. Yeah. And were you guys using um, mist nets to trap them? Yeah. So they weren't happy with us. Yeah. So, it, yeah. And I mean, mist nets are a great way to capture and ban birds. Um, luckily for us, uh, the way that we have set up our Purple Martin houses, um, they are equipped to be fit with a trap door. Uh, oh. So to catch the adults, um, we don't have to rely on mist nets. We actually will <laughs> go out. We'll, we'll set up the trap doors like in the afternoon, right? And we tie all the trap doors up with fishing string. And then we pay, we draw straws. Someone goes out at 4 a.m. Everybody's <laughs> inside sleeping. And we cut the strings. All the trap doors fall. And then we do something that we call Purple Martin Palooza, uh, which is where we get a big group of people to quickly process the birds. And when I say process, we're taking them out. We're taking measurements, uh, collecting fecal samples, collecting blood samples. Um, and fitting our adults who do not have bands with those bands. And some of our adults also get the uh, experience of carrying a special tag for us, uh, which is a GPS and it fits on them like a little backpack. Um, And, you know, GPS technology has come a long way for tracking animals, but we're, but battery technology hasn't quite kept up. Uh, so birds are a very lightweight animal. Obviously, we wouldn't want to put anything on them that would um, make it harder for them to fly. So we're limited as to what size battery we can put in these GPS units. So that means that we put a battery on this bird. We They get an extra special, a, a second leg band. Um, so we know that they're carrying, it's like bright purple. So we know they're carrying a GPS for us. And we say, okay, go to Brazil and please come back. And also (laughs) please let us catch you again next year. Um, Because while we can put a battery in that will log data points for that whole time, we can't put one in that's strong enough to send us that data while they're gone. So we are, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, putting these batteries out there, or I'm sorry, these GPSs out there. And then um, we're just really crossing our fingers that we get them back so we can get the data off of them. So do the, are they supposed to come back to the same spot every year? Yeah, or? they're very site-specific. Um, so Purple Martins will pretty regularly come back to the same site again and again. Maybe not quite the same nesting compartment. The interesting thing about Purple Martins, while they are um, faithful to each other for uh, each season, they will come back to the same house. You know, Nancy and Paul had a, had a great brood last year. Nancy and Paul. <laughs> Did their thing. You know, but what we found with actually GPS data, Nancy and Paul don't even travel back to Brazil together. Um, they don't hang out in the Amazon together. They don't come back to us together. And then when they get there, they might nest at the same house, but they won't they won't have a brood together again. So we don't exactly know where it is. I like to think it's probably like a, a genetic diversity um, thing. Makes sense. But yeah, that makes the most sense. So yeah, they're very sight uh, sight faithful. Um, gotcha. So even, until we even with the them- awkward interactions from past lovers, <laughs> until we can uh, make them talk, this is where we're this is where right. we're at. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess the next question is, how can like if our listeners are just in love with me? Martin, That's me. Like, you know, like Abby <laughs> might be. Um, 
Is there anything that we can do like outside of a zoo aquarium setting to help? Absolutely. Um, So like I said, one of the biggest things we need is data, data, data. Um, And this is, uh, you can do this by putting up your own purple Martin houses. Uh, They are a little bit of an investment. There is kind of like a variety of pricing. Um, But if you're interested in doing that, I strongly recommend using the resources on the Purple Martin Conservation Association website um, to find your Purple Martin houses. Um, Or if you live somewhere where you already know that someone has a Purple Martin house up, you know, you can talk to them or try to get one put up by your local county. And then what you can do, again, using the uh, PMCA website, uh, you can download their their data sheet. And then just uh, once a week during nesting season, you can go out and log what you see how many nests are being built, how many eggs are being laid, how many chicks there are, do those chicks fledge, all that good stuff. Um, So collecting data is a great way. And of course, if you live in an area where you don't have purple martins, there are lots of other great things that you can do to help purple martins and other songbirds. Uh, Purple martins love to live near the water because there's lots of yummy bugs to scoop off the water. So really keeping our waterways clean you know, reducing pollution and wastewater and all, you know, all that good stuff. Um, you can also, of course, keep your, uh, keep your cats inside. Um, you do have, I love my cat, but she has a leash in a bubble and that's it. She's not allowed outside no matter how much she wants to go outside. And if you do happen to have an outdoor cat in your neighborhood, you know, look into getting them spayed and neutered. So we don't, keep having more outdoor cats. They're, they're a huge problem for songbirds. Um, you know, of course, you can tell other people about Purple Martins. You know, educating people is a great way uh, to, to get the interest up. Just send yeah, just podcast, you know, easy peasy. Lemon squeezy. And then they can learn other stuff too, so we can get more five-star reviews on iTunes. There you go. That's true. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot you can do. You can look at the Purple Martin Conservation Association's webpage. They have a lot of funny... Um, like products you can buy. There's a Purple Martin Christmas sweater. That's so, my favorite. You know. I say, Abby, you can put the link to the um, Purple Martin Conservation Association website on our I on absolutely our will. Yeah. So there's, you know, you can educate yourself. You can, you can even put birdhouses up for, other, you know, other birds. Even if you don't have Purple Martins in your areas, you know, we're, we're all trying to save songbirds and, throughout the world and in North America. So providing housing and habitat to animals is, is such a great way to help your, your backyard friends. Just know what you're getting Excellent. into too, because bird feeders, especially are an investment that you need to like really have good upkeep with, or you can make your birds. Sick. Yeah. Make them clean. Make mm-hmm. them so you nice, have to make yeah. sure you're doing a good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So I think, Abby, unless you have any other Purple Martin questions, that we can jump into the fun yeah. questions. <laughs> Not that those are ones that weren't fun, because right. anything about birds is fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Abby, I think fun questions is your area of expertise today. I mean, today. isn't it always? Um, Michelle, we know that you love Purple Martins more than most animals, but what's your favorite animal? So I've always said, you know, I feel like, as a child, I picked my favorite animal and now I can't, you know, discard it. Like I've always loved wolves and I feel like I have to be faithful to them, but that's good. Red River hogs are really, really close. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. No, no piggies. piggies. 
There's I'll a say. if you don't know what a red river hog is, look them up. Specifically, their babies. Their babies the are babies striped look- like like watermelons. They look like baby tapers. I know. If you've seen the live action uh, Lion King, baby Pumbaa. Oh, this is so annoying. It's, it's a, red a red river red hog, red. which is interesting as he is supposed to be a warthog, but who's counting? Who didn't do their research? <laughs> Only us. <laughs> I'm sure they did their research. They were just like, nah, this is <laughs> I mean, baby warthogs are also pretty cute. Not as Not cute, as cute though, as a red yeah. river hog. Not as cute, yeah. Is there any animal, Michelle, that you'd just like to roast? Just roast? Oh, I'm a panda hater. (gasps) Yes! I joked around when I joined um, our conservation team that I was in it to, you know, take pandas down from the inside. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I get it. They're cute. I just wish that, you know, we could spread some conservation money around to other species. Literally. I I won't start ranting now because I did that two weeks ago. Last episode. <laughs> right. Um, but I wholeheartedly agree and I will be happy to roast pandas with you anytime. <laughs> All right. Another one um, that we really like to talk about, obviously we talk about a lot of zoos and aquariums on our podcast. Do you have a favorite facility that you've visited? A favorite facility? Hmm. I am partial to the Philadelphia Zoo. That's my hometown zoo. And America's first zoo, so. And they also have a Zoo 360 thing that's really cool. I think I'm going to have to go with one that's not as known and loved, and I love visiting it, and it's here in Florida, and it's the St. Augustine Alligator Farm. <gasps> yes! Yes, Ooh. it's a fantastic facility. They have every kind of alligator crocodile species in the world, and they have gal- Galapagos tortoises, and I love Galapagos tortoises. And cassowaries, and they're terrified. Yes! dinosaur birds they're so scary so great and it's like it's a park you can do in half a day and it's just i every time i'm in st augustine i make a stop and i go out they have this amazing um exhibit that is they call it the swamp and it's like over 200 crocodiles and alligators and you walk a boardwalk and there's just they're all over and they do these giant feeds and it's just so fun to watch them so yes uh, Emily, have you been Amazing. there yet? Uh, I have not been. Did you? There, you want to go with but, me? Because I want to go again. Well, I heard Michelle's going for her bachelorette <gasps> party, so I was just thinking. Yeah, just crash that. I will tell you, I <laughs> just the alligator farm portion. I also did have my bachelorette party at a zoo because my sister knows me. Shout out to my sister, knowing mm-hmm. I didn't want to do anything crazy, uh, and we just got wine drunk on canned wine at, there you go. at the Palm Beach Zoo, and it was fantastic. So. Yeah, I mean, if you go to the St. Augustine Alligator Farm, check out the St. Augustine Distillery. They do tours with free samples. (gasps) Okay, and then I think last question. Um, I mean, you kind of went over it, I guess, in your intro, but what is like your most fun project that you've been a part of either at our current facility or any other place you've worked before? Yeah, like I said, I mean, Glacier was probably the most fun I had for a summer internship, which is, I mean, who can beat being out in a national park for three months? But actually, the project that came to mind when you said that was um, preparing for a baby elephant birth. Um, Elephants have this, while most mammals don't drop their progesterone, which is the pregnancy hormone, until they give birth, elephants actually have this drop 
two to three days beforehand. Um, and so <laughs> we were, uh, myself and the, and the head endocrinologist, we were like lining up our assays to make sure that we were like really tight in our pipetting technique. Uh, Cause you know, we were looking for small changes in progesterone to let people know when the baby was coming. And I ran daily elephant assays for three months because and asses not being butts asses being <laughs> assays being a type of test yeah yeah just to clarify for listeners <laughs> who don't know because i feel like <laughs> we might have some confusion um and yeah this this little girl did not want to did not want to show up and i was starting to get worried because i was like i'm going home for christmas you need to get it going <laughs> um but that was just a, a really rewarding process uh to do and and watch Amazing. All right. Um, any last questions, Abby? I just, when can I come help with the project again? Because I did get to help with it a little bit last year and then everything happened. And I just want to come back and help more because it was so fun. Absolutely. Yeah, this year's been a little bit weird. Uh, our nest tracks have had to be kind of pared down due to COVID uh, restrictions. But hopefully next year we'll be up and running again and we'll get to do Paloozas again and do banding and all that good stuff. So I hope soon. <laughs> I'll keep my fingers crossed. I would love. <laughs> I got my Fauci Alchi today, so I'm ready. Yay! Yes. <laughs> Woo! We love it. We can't All wait right. to see what kind well, of lizard you I turn think... into. Yes, me too. It's true. I hope I have a crest. <laughs> yeah, let me know how that 5G comes in. <gasps> well, that wraps it up for our Purple Martin Talk with Michelle. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank for you. being our very first guest. Woo! Super Woo! exciting. Uh, everybody, we hope that you enjoyed this part. And now we're going to hand it back to the other ladies to tell you all about our other things. All right. Thank you, future Abby, future Emily, and also future Michelle for all of that information. It was glorious. I'm sure our listeners had a great time listening to it. Speaking of listeners, let us know. What do you guys want to hear? What do you guys want to hear us talk about? We've got, you know, episodes in the future that you could, you could be the inspiration for. Let us know what you want to hear. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us via all of our social media, our Instagram, our Facebook. We have a website. We got an email, Conservation Queens Podcast. You can find us. We're not hard to find. Um, as always, if you want to rate us on whatever platform you're listening to us on, especially iTunes and Spotify, that really helps other people discover our podcast. And of course, you can always just tell your friends that you're listening to the world's greatest podcast, the Conservation Queens Podcast. Uh, with that, thank you so much for joining us this week. Get out there, stay sustainable, and bye. Bye. Remember to get your COVID vaccines. Woo, get that Fauci out. Woo. <laughs> Woo.